0: Uh, We come to the next portion in the God's Word, in the book of James, and it is one of those texts and one of those passages that uh, cause some challenges for us, both theologically and practically. It's a well-known chapter, it's a well-known section of Scripture, um, and I would delight in your continued prayers, even as we continue on in this message this morning. So if you're able, please rise. As we read God's word from James chapter two, verses fourteen to twenty six, or from fourteen to the end of the chapter, hear the reading of God's word. <clears throat> what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what is what good is that? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was complicated, completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead so far the reading of God's Word thanks be to God let's pray oh our Lord and God you never cease to amaze us in the depth and the power and the conviction of your word but sometimes we confess that your word may confuse us and cause us to wonder and scratch our heads so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be present with us this morning, that you would give us clarity, that you would indeed give us conviction of truth and who you are and what you've done for us. Holy Spirit, I pray for myself this morning, that you would carry my words to these dear ones gathered here today, whether that's in this sanctuary or online or 10 years from now, that you would guide these words that you would convince, convict, and change lives. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, who lives and reigns forever and ever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Paul, in writing to the church in Rome, says these words from Romans chapter 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of God of the law. Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, writes these words. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And then we read texts like this morning. In James chapter 2, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Boom! What? Paul says this. James says this, yeah? This is where the conversation of contradiction has its origin. Nearly every non believing scholar will immediately go to this contradiction or apparent contradiction. You see, if they can prove that the Bible is contradictory, then they have a case against the sovereignty of the Lord. They have a case against His authority. They have a case against His very truth claim to be God, omnipotent, powerful, eternal, true. The Bible is not accurate. And it's just another nice story about a nice guy who gives us a nice way to live our lives? We, especially in reform circles, want to make the argument that we are justified by grace through faith. And we argue with that person who would say otherwise. We, as a matter of fact, would go even further and we stake our very reformed doctrine on this very truth claim, don't we? We stake our doctrine, we stake our denomination almost on these very things. We can call them the five solas or the five onlys of the Reformation. That is, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, and to God's glory alone, the five solas of the Reformation. Of which we stake our very doctrine upon. We stake our commitment to orthodoxy based upon this very statement. We're saved by grace through faith. And yet James says something different. He says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So, how then are we able to do that if there is such a clear And marked contradiction in the very thing that we call the Word of God, which we claim is true and right and without contradiction. God cannot contradict Himself, right? I'm with you. I'm with you. And then this is where some have questioned, even to those with names like Martin Luther have thought to himself, wait a minute, does James really belong in the canon of scripture? Because it sure seems like he's saying something different than what Paul is saying and what we stake our very faith upon. So the question then to all of us is, well, should it be? Should James be in our canon of scripture? This is a real question and something that indeed must be handled with theological acuteness and accuracy because depending on how we answer that question really does have a very very deep impact on how we live our lives today tomorrow 30 years from now it makes a huge difference because if james is not consistent you see with the remaining part or the the other parts of scripture then the bible is not true And why should we believe anything in it? It's supposed to be the Bible after all. It's supposed to be God's word after all. So where do we go from here? Because Paul says one thing. James says another. Yeah? Well, let's look at that. I'm going to give you three examples of something, and I want to play a little game with you, both here and then a little bit later in the message as well. I want us to understand the peculiarity, the uniqueness, the joy, the wonder of human language, especially the English human language. So let's do this. So if I say, let's go, or I say, let's go. I say, let's go. Language is interesting, isn't it? If a beginning student of the English language were to read that phrase, let's go, or even if we read the phrase, let's go, we would see something. We would see that the function of the phrase is there. There's a subject, there's a verb, there's a contraction of two English words that takes place. The word let which is considered an auxiliary verb. So you're going to get a little English lesson from me here, right? There's there's an auxiliary verb attached with a noun. Let's, let us, right? And then there's the actual verb of this small little phrase. Go. You have all the components of a sentence. It works. There's a noun, there's a verb. Let's go. They make sense together. They work together. Yet, each of them how I phrase them to you means three completely different things, yeah? So if I say, let's go, it could be like me. Maybe I dream back in the day when I would dunk on somebody and it's a close game and I dig, let's go, right? We're fired up. We won a game. Let's go, right? Or let's go. You're at a party with your spouse's work and you're kind of on the outside of the fringes of the conversation and, you're, and you're, you're, your partner is loving all the the, the the friendships that he or she has and having a good time and you're trying to make small talk and you're frustrated and out of place and by three or four hours into the thing you go up to your partner your spouse and you say let's go Or the third way, you're a child and you just opened up a Christmas present and your parents give you tickets to Disney World and you're like, let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's go. Exact same phrase, three different meanings. So what do, we do, what do we do with that? So how do we tell the difference? Well, we need a context, yeah? I mean, that's that's the important part of here. We have a context of an athlete who's just dunked on somebody and won a game. That's a completely different thing. Or somebody frustrated at a party that just wants to go home and a little child that just wants to go to Disney World. All completely different meanings. Now we're beginning to understand Paul and James. This is how we understand the book of James and it's how we understand the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. So that's where I want to begin this message with, and in, in investigating this text with you this morning. I want to explore it with you in three different ways. First, I want to set the stage for a context, and that's where we're starting at right now. And then I want to explore with you, what is faith, and more specifically, what is a dead faith and a living faith, and then answer the question hopefully of so what so let's start there let's start with the context of of what's happening here but before we get too far into the weeds of context i want us to see another interesting thing about the human language and i actually do want to play a little game with you and oftentimes i say don't raise your hand and and all those kind of things but this morning i actually want you to play the game with me right and so i'm going to do this i'm going to say one word and you say the next word right peanut butter and yeah you guys got it right Batman and? Very good. Starsky and? Ha How about this one? Rocky and? Okay, some of you are going, what the what? Who's that? How about this one? Jordan and? Come on! You're killing me! Pippin, of course! Uh, that's my MBA for you, right? There we go. Or here's one that I think we should all get. Steak and? We're on same, eggs, but pota- How about, the, uh, maybe I have a, a higher class, right? Maybe I, maybe I just like things differently than you do. I'm not saying eggs. Steak and la- lobster. Sorry. I guess I should go back to my uh, Chicago blue collar days and think of steak and potatoes and steak and eggs. So I put steak and lobster on my paper. I yeah, well, there we go. You see, these things just work, don't they? Steak and lobster just work. Jordan and Pippin just work. But this is the nature of faith and works, also. They just work. Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time on his own. Pairing with Scotty Pippen and the 90s Chicago Bulls, unstoppable. Peanut butter is good, but put it with jelly, ah, unstoppable. The faith is great on its own. Pair it with works. Unstoppable. Now, how about this game? Same game, different thing. Six days you shall do all your good job. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall do no? Or how about this one? I am the Lord your God who took you up out of the land of Egypt and the land of slavery. That's a preamble of the Ten Commandments, yes? He says, I took you out of Egypt. I took you out of slavery. I called you to myself. I made you mine. Now here are ten things for you. Here are 10 things for you to live well in the land. Not to prove your worth or your value or your importance. That's already been given to you because I've already taken you out of Egypt. I've taken you out of slavery. I've redeemed you. I've brought you to myself. But now here are 10 things that I give to you to do well in the land that I'm going to give to you. This is how you flourish. This is how you do well. This is how you live in a community. Do these things. Or in other words, Work out these things. Work out your faith and the grace that I've already given to you. That's what God's saying to us. You see, the Bible's not afraid of works. We might be, but the Bible is not. God is not afraid of works. We might be, but He is not. You see, God is a God of work. He's a God of action. Proven in the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Certainly Jesus has faith, yes? James even says to us that even demons have faith. And they shudder. But what is the work that's accomplished? We use the phrase often, the person and the work of Jesus Christ, don't we? Work and works are fundamentally not bad things, but rather good things. This is what James is saying to us this morning. So how do we determine exactly what James is telling us? It comes down then to context. So let's look at the situation between Paul and James, between this apparent contradiction of what's happening. But Let me first say, without any shadow of a doubt, I have no doubt about this whatsoever, and I hope that you don't either. Paul and James are not contradicting their belief in the gospel. They believe the same thing about who Jesus is, about what he's done, and what that means to them. 100 percent, they agree on the gospel they both adhere to this through by grace through faith there's no doubt about it so how in the wide world can we make that claim because we just read things that say something completely different let's look at it the church in rome is dealing with a certain set of situations just as the church in Arlington is dealing with a certain set of situations. We all have our own hardships, trials, joys, sufferings, laughter, celebration, all of these things. The church at Rome is dealing with a certain question. The question that the Romans are dealing with is, what saves me? How am I saved? How am I justified? What does that look like? The answer, then, that Paul is writing to the church at Rome, that's really the whole intent of Romans, is to say, this is how you are saved. This is how you are justified. And Paul gives the message to them that true faith in Christ Jesus that saves is not performing works to the law, not performing the works of the law to perfection, but rather grace saves you by faith. There's a specific question. a specific answer. How am I saved? By grace, through faith. Well, the church of Galatia is dealing with something too. The church of Galatia is saying similar types of things, but they're wrestling with a different situation. The church in Galatia is wrestling with people in their midst that they've been labeled uh, a term called Judaizers. What Judaizers were, were newly converted Jews from Christianity to say, yes, we believe in Jesus 100%. We believe in the gospel. We believe that he's our savior. We believe that he lived and died and rose again for our sins. That's all true and that's all good and that's all right, but there's one exception. You need to take Jesus and that belief and what he's done, but then you also need to put on top of that faith and on top of what Jesus does, you have to adhere to certain subsets of the Mosaic Law. There's still a dietary law you have to obey to. There's a a cleanliness law that you have to obey to. You still, oh, by the way, new converted Gentile, you need to get circumcised as well. Have Jesus and put the works on top of it. Right? So what Paul is saying to the church at Galatians is no, (laughs) you're saved by grace through faith. That's it. Okay, those make sense. So now what's James wrestling with? He's, he's, he's writing to a broader audience, uh, a broader audience in the dispersia of Jewish believers now, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a much more larger context in which he's speaking to. And in this group of believers who are con- converted from the Jewish, Jewish faith, they hear the words, great, I'm set free from the law. I no longer have to be a Judaizer. I don't have to be... This person that accepts Jesus and obey all the Mosaic law. I don't have to necessarily get circumcised. I don't have to, pay, I don't have to obey the dietary laws. I don't necessarily have to obey the, 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 the cleanliness laws. I'm set free, and now I can live my life however I want to live my life. I'm good. I believe in Jesus. It's all good. Follow. So this dispersion church is saying we're now we've, our chains have been taken from us. We don't have to be under the weight of the law any longer. So let's just go. Let's, let's just live our lives with happiness and freedom in any way we want. And James is saying, no. Not really. James is saying, you can't just live your life anyway. It's not the way it works. So in each case, the situation is different. And what a good counselor, what a good pastor, mentor, advisor will do is understand the contextual circumstance and apply the truth of the Lord to the people he is instructing or teaching or loving. Let's go! Let's go. Let's go. Same things, different contexts. To harmonize these three texts in or, or, to, or in other words to, to place them all in a similar meaning we can say that there's there's nothing that you can do to earn your faith but once you have faith that doesn't mean that there's any not anything to do follow me there's nothing you can do to earn your faith but it doesn't mean that once you have faith there's nothing to do that's the context that makes all the difference in the world so now that we have a little bit of the context, we have an understanding of what these texts mean and, and how they're being employed in a specific way without contradiction. Because there's, when, when we engage in language, we engage in a conversation, you can't just read somebody's mail and expect to understand the totality of it all. You, ha- you have to dig deeper and you have to understand more of what's happening. So therefore, we need to ask that question that's before us in James 2. What then is the faith that James is talking about? Is it the kind of faith that the author of Hebrews is talking about? Defining faith for us? Yes and no. Is it the kind of faith that Paul is talking about in regards to justification? Yes and no. What James is saying is that when we use the definition of faith given in Hebrews, that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. James understands that concept. He understands that truth and he's saying, okay, person, okay, new convert of Christianity from Judaism, you have this hope in in things that you don't see and things that you're sure of, right? What are you doing with that? What is it that you're hoping for? What is it that you're certain of that you don't see? And what that is, is that Jesus Christ has lived a perfect life for you. That He died a sinner's death in my place. that He rose from the dead. That He ascended into heaven. And that He will again return to make all things new. And He does this for you and He does this for me. And we don't deserve that grace. Yet it's freely given to us. James takes that definition then and that understanding of faith and he says, okay, you claim to have this faith. Now what are you going to do with that faith? I'm the Lord your God who took you up out of the land of Egypt. Now what are you going to do about that? Does it make any difference to you? If you claim to have it and you go on in your sinful patterns and your sinful life, then your faith is not Genuine. If the grace of Jesus has been given to you, your life is changed. If your life hasn't changed, your faith is dead. And your faith is dead in the grave. So this then is where the heartache comes. This is when it begins to get a little bit personal. Personal. This is when James chapter 2 begins to knife into our hearts and into our souls, begin to prick at our conscience. It gnaws at our thoughts, at our lives, and our emotions. James uses again the illustration of a poor man who has needs and one who claims to have faith and does nothing to aid. What James is saying is that you who were once an enemy of God, who were a blatant rebel, while you were still a sinner, while we were enemies, while we were in the middle, in the midst of an ongoing sin, Jesus died on the cross to take your punishment in your place. And that means nothing to you? if it does mean something to you and you have been truly been given faith and the gift of grace, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. The question then that we all need to ask ourselves, myself included, has faith made any difference in my life at all? Does the fact that I've been given grace through faith make any difference? Have I loved my neighbor well this week, today? Have I harbored bitterness and anger at people in church, my job? My family? The people on television who I think are idiots? The people I hate? How do I love my neighbor as myself? And I believe if I look in my own heart and my own life, The answer to that question is no, I haven't. And, yes, I have harbored bitter and angerness. Yes, I confess that many times in my life, this grace and faith that's been given to me really has no impact on my daily life. Why? Because it's a whole lot easier to be angry and bitter it's a whole lot easier to not engage. It's a whole lot easier to, to have, may I even be a bold enough to say, a lazy faith that I don't want to get into the mess of other people's stuff. Because it's just too hard. It takes too much work. And frankly, I'm comfortable as I can be right now. And after all, I've got way too many other things going in my life. I have a full-time job. I have kids. I have whatever it may be and it's just easier to be in that existence in that world and to say no i'm going to i got enough going on, on on my own life i don't need to get into the mess of your life too cuz that's just too much too much energy too much time too much effort you see this is the difference between a dead faith and a living faith a dead faith just says It's too hard. I can't deal with that person. I can't deal with their need. I can't deal with their hurt. I can't deal with their joy. I can't deal with their stuff right now. I've got my own stuff. Don't they understand that? A dead faith simply rages and increases in bitterness. A dead faith sees our neighbor as different. Cancelled. Messy. Too much work. It's a good thing that Jesus has a living faith, yeah? It's a good thing that Jesus humbled himself and took on flesh. It's a good thing that Jesus humbled himself and took on flesh and entered into the mess of Ryan's stuff. It's a good thing that Jesus did not think it too difficult to take my place on the cross when I was His very enemy. It's a good thing that Jesus did not think it too hard or that it would take too much energy, energy to endure condemnation and hell in my place. It's a good thing because that's what He did. He entered into your mess, into your brokenness. And He entered into my mess and my brokenness. He said, I love you enough to die on a cross. Because Jesus did accomplish these things for me and for us. Therefore, we can say justification is not an ongoing act. We are saved once and for all, by grace, through faith. And faith is a living and acting function of who we are. We are to work out our salvation according to the will of the Lord. James 2, 14-26 is a difficult text to explore. Not only for theological purposes, but also for practical purposes. If you claim to have faith, and you have not works, you do not love your neighbor, you do not love your enemy, your faith is dead. So self-examination time. (laughs) Which one do you have? Be honest with yourself. Be honest with the Lord. Think of your week. Think of your day. Think of your year. Think of your life. What does your faith look like? Do you have a living faith? That's defined by love and grace and mercy? Or do you have a life that wants to sit back in comfort and ease and be okay with where you are and let somebody else do it? Let somebody else take care of that person, let somebody else show that person mercy and comfort. Do you have a life based on service and compassion? Or is your faith that and you find yourself in a place of normal? Is life too messy? And those people over there, those liberals who are destroying our country, those conservatives who have no compassion and understanding, those rich people, those poor people, Those people, they disgust me. It's too much for me to handle them. Jesus tells us that's exactly who we're supposed to love. Because that's what he did for us first. Because we were his enemies, we were his rebels. You see, this faith that has been given to us makes all the difference in how we practically live our lives. Today, tomorrow, and every day. This faith means, this living faith means that we look outside of ourselves. We look outside of ourselves and we look to Jesus and we see this is how Jesus loves me and my messiness and my brokenness and my stuff. And so, this then is how we're to love other people and their messiness and their brokenness and their stuff. Because Jesus did that for me first. This faith means that we look to Jesus. It means we look to love like Jesus loves. We look to serve in humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit to give us the power, the faithfulness, the endurance, the courage, the strength. To live and to serve like that. that's what faith looks like, knowing that we can't do this on our own, and I need it to be on my knees saying, "I really can't handle that person's stuff." I can't handle my own stuff, but Holy Spirit, you are the one that provides me faith to know that you will give me the strength and the endurance and the care and the support to love like Jesus loves, even when it's hard, even when it's messy when it hurts, and even when it laughs or cries. We look to our neighbor and we see someone created in the image of God. Not a person with a label. True faith then looks like laying down your life for the other person. Because this is what Jesus has done for me. To have faith is to put your faith to work. To have true faith is to have faith at work. So this morning, may we live out our lives in faithful, loving obedience to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who loves us and has given us grace through faith. So then, May we have a faith that works because we have a faith that works. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we give You praise and thanks that You have loved us the way that You have. That You laid down Your life for us. That You give us Your grace and faith. But may that not be an empty grace or an empty faith but may we love our neighbors in the exact same way you've loved us, that we will be willing to sacrifice our very life for that person. Give us the strength to do that. Give us the courage to do that. Give us the endurance to do that. We pray this in the strong and mighty and glorious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.